Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show. My name is Cameron English, Director of Biosciences at the American Council on Science and Health, joined again by my good friend and colleague, Dr. Chuck Dinnerstein, who is a world traveler. Chuck, how was Spain in the spring? I'm really curious. Oh, the, the trip was great. Spain and France were, were both wonderful. We had some great weather, so it was in the mid-70s and blue skies and chance to be outside and enjoying uh, some just beautiful parts of the world. It was really nice. Well, it was 102 here in Northern California, so thanks for, uh, thanks for sharing that with me. I really appreciate that. <laughs> My pleasure. <laughs> okay. Well, we're back with two more stories. Chuck is the author of one, and I am the author of the other. Let's dive into these, both related to diet, nutrition, and, and, and epidemiology as well. So first up is good genes, good diet, or both. And this is Chuck's uh, story about a new study looking at the development of type 2 diabetes. And then there was another paper that hit the headlines uh, about a week ago, and it was promoting the idea that going vegan is, is a good way or maybe even the, the ideal way to lose weight. So my story is going vegan the best way to lose weight. So we're going to take these in turn. But Chuck, tell us about this, uh, this paper that you wrote up for, for ACSH about, about a week okay. ago now. It was an, actually a fairly interesting study as far as nutritional studies go. Uh, it involves some nutritional information from the uh, Nurses Health Study, which is a longitudinal study. And as all these studies do, it does use a food frequency questionnaire to get um, information about the, the diets of different individuals. But what was really different about this was that the nursing health study also has genomic information on all of these nurses, and this is what they used to stratify things. They went back to the UK's biobank and looked at patients with diabetes and using this genome-wide association study identified um, genes that they found associated with the onset of type 2 diabetes. So important fact number one is they identified two different sets of genes that were involved. One that involved a, a failure of beta cells, kind of the way you would think about a type 1 patient with diabetes where the, the pancreas no longer makes insulin at all. So that's one pathway, though these again were type 2 patients. And the other pathway uh, was the genes that were involved with insulin resistant, which is insulin resistance which is what we hear most commonly discussed uh, in most journal articles and certainly in, in the, uh, the popular press is that our diet causes insulin resistance and this is the pathway uh, for which we wind up both obese and with diabetes. So they took that information from the biobank and used that to characterize the, the nurses and their diet and looked at the results overall. And the results were pretty interesting. Genes contributed about 53% of any effect in terms of developing uh, type 2 diabetes. Diet in and of itself contributed about 38%. So diet was not necessarily as important as our genes. But as it turns out, as with all of medicine and all of biology, it always becomes more complex. When they broke it down and they looked at the people that had a uh, failure of their beta cells, which, by the way, interestingly enough, represented mo the, at least a quarter of the patients with diabetes. When they looked at those people, the effect of diet was very insignificant 
upon them developing diabetes. Whether they ate a healthful diet or a less than healthful diet, genetics seemed to be driving the situation more for them. For the patients that had insulin-resistant genetics, a smaller group, though again, as I, I point out, one that we think about more popularly, diet did contribute significantly more, about 80% of the effect of uh, a patient developing diabetes was from diet in that instance. So as I, as I wrote, there are many ways up this particular mountain, and that the argument that the Western diet applies um, is true to some degree, but not to the degree that we would think. The, you know, the bottom line, unfortunately, from a medical point of view, is that you can do very little about our genes, and that the only area where you can have any uh, effect is through diet. And again, it only applies for this very small subgroup of patients that have a, a genetic predisposition to insulin resistance. Fascinating stuff. The, uh, the first criticism that I, I think I saw a few commenters raise and that I've heard, you know, just more generally when we're talking about the relationship between genetics and diet or really genetics and health in any capacity is, well, how much has, uh, an individual's genetic makeup, or I guess the population's genetics, how, how significantly has that changed since the obesity epidemic or crisis or situation, whatever you want to call it? How, how much could our genetics have changed and thus exerted this kind of influence on diabetes and these related metabolic issues? Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I, I don't think that our genes have changed very much at all. And, and, and the popular argument is, is that our diet has changed significantly, and therefore, most of the impact of increasing amounts of diabetes must be due to our diet. And to the extent that they, the researchers showed that for people that have a genetic predisposition to insulin resistance, that is indeed the case. But what was different in the study, which I wouldn't have been aware of uh, without having looked at it, was that people with uh, insulin resistance, at least from a genetic point of view, are in the minority. They are not um, the largest group of people with a genetic proclivity towards diabetes. That really has to do with the people that have failure of these beta cells where diet makes very little uh, difference. And so does diet play a role? Yes, but not, not to the degree that the popular literature would make you think the case um, or would make the case. So how much trust should we put in this, these results? You know, say, say you're the physician and I'm the patient and I come to you and I say, you know, I'm not a nurse, nor do I really care about nurses' health. Um, and I don't put much stock in the fact that uh, people fill out food frequency questionnaires, which we've talked about, you know, on past episodes about how dubious those numbers can be. Um, so, so what do we make of this? How do we properly contextualize these results? Well, I think it, that it says, again, that you really have to personalize your, your dietary choices uh, to the individual. And that if someone has a genetic profile that makes them more inclined towards insulin resistance, then yes, um, diet um, will make a difference and you can make some dietary recommendations in terms of avoiding high glycemic foods or foods with a... Um, a high glycemic index. For 
a large portion of people, um, the diet is not going to have an effect. And so you, when you when you give them these diets and they come back a few weeks later frustrated that they're no better, um, that may be a, a reasonable time to start looking at, at some of the underlying genetics. But we're not quite at the point where we can talk about uh, personalized medicine in that way, though that's clearly the, you know, the, the grail that people would be looking for. There was news, I want to say, two weeks ago or so about um, some, some treatments that are based on gene editing that were, the, the one I'm thinking of, it's still in clinical trials and it's primarily focused on uh, heart disease risk and, and lowering LDL cholesterol. Yes. So, I mean, maybe that's related in some way here, but what I'm more curious about is, are those sorts of therapies where you can literally go into the cells and, you know, nip and tuck very discrete segments of DNA in a way that might influence someone's uh, blood glucose control or their, their cholesterol or whatever are and your, 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 you know, expert opinion on this, is that the way forward here for, for these situations? Cause what I'm hearing you say is, you know, eat well exercise, but you know, life happens, luck of the draw, you know, there's yeah. sometimes there's just not that much you can do. Sometimes the, the fate is in the stars. I, the, the cholesterol, um, Gene editing has to do with a gene. We're talking here in this study with a group of genes, and we're nowhere near any kind of uh, approach where we can begin talking about editing multiple genes because we really have no concept of how that will uh, ultimately affect us. You make a change in one, we have a reasonable chance at seeing uh, whether there's going to be a downside. But when we start changing three or four at a time, uh, our biology is not such a thing that we can uh, do that, at least from my point of view. Sure. Yeah. And that makes sense. I, you know, if you go in and start cutting up the A's and T's and G's and C's and all that, you might see some effect that you weren't expecting. And we see that with drugs all the time. I mean, that's why we do clinical trials is because, you know, you give someone a drug for hair loss or whatever, and then all of a sudden they've got a weird rash. Or, or something, you know what I mean? So it, it's just going to take a while to, to suss this out. But and as I said, it's the grail is to be able to um, prescribe a treatment that's um, that's supportive of your genetic profile. But we're still a long way from knowing what the our genetic profile actually means and then figuring out the most efficacious way to support it. So more, more studies needed, basically. I always used to get really mad when I would see that in the discussion section of a paper because it always sounded to me like a veiled request for more grant money. But in many cases, it's, it's true in that there's only so much information you can uncover with one study design and with the amount of data you have and indeed the amount of funding you have. There's just, there's just limits. So we just have to wait until we can get more research is what it's right, and, like. and I think that in, a good study raises more questions than it answers. And in that regard, this is a good study. You know, we, we, we can, you know, pick away at, at various parts of it. But I, I think that the take-home message is that there's more than one genetic profile that may make you more likely to develop diabetes, that within those different genetic profiles, our response to diet is different, and that the blanket statement that you have to eat this or you have to eat that just doesn't work. Yeah, it's a very good point. It's a very good point. And that leads us into uh, our second story, 
uh, about vegan diets being the best way, or at least potentially the best way to lose weight. Cause this seems to run up against some of the, some of the, the wisdom you just shared about, you know, sometimes there's just not that much you can do. So this was based on a meta analysis. It was unpublished. I believe it was presented at a conference. Uh, but mm-hmm. the researchers looked at 11 clinical trials, and there were just under 800 people involved in these studies. So they looked at at how being on a vegan diet of some, you know, varying quality, as we'll discuss, you know, people went on a vegan diet, and they were compared to either a control group where they just ate whatever they wanted, or they were on some form of the Mediterranean diet, which is, I guess, is sort of like a pescatarian diet. There's fish and nuts and yes oils, that kind of stuff. But it, but it excludes a lot of what I think most people would consider junk food or, you know, bad food, fast food process, whatever <laughs> you want to call it. Um, and they found that people on this diet lost somewhere between nine and 14 pounds on average. And, um, you know, the, t- the typical uh, markers improved too. So, so blood glucose, cholesterol, all of the things that you would look at as a, as a doctor and go, hey, you know, we need to do something about your diet here. But what I found most interesting is that when you actually get into the paper and you look at the trials and you look at how they were designed, what you see is that the people on the vegan diet were on a reduced calorie diet significantly, I believe. So, so that's one thing I'm I'm curious to get your input on it. And it kind of bothers me because I see this in nutrition research a lot where they're, they're, they're doing an AB comparison of, of diets. And in many cases, the researchers have some investment in one of the outcomes, either because they've publicly said, hey, you know, go go on a vegan diet or go on a low-carb diet or do the paleo thing and, and just eat raspberries and worms that you find in the dirt or whatever. Um, and I don't think they do it intentionally, but sometimes there's, there's somewhat of a bias in the design. So I've seen, for example, if they're looking at a low-carb diet, they will set the carb intake for people at like 150 grams a day, which is, if you're trying to avoid carbohydrates, it's pretty high. So the that might distort the results a little bit. And I think in this case, you, you may have had the same thing. Cause if you're trying to see, is there something unique about eating a vegan diet, that's going to help you lose weight. You at least need to make sure that people in the studies are eating the same number of calories, right? That as a baseline, I think that just makes sense. What are your thoughts? Oh, that, that right away is probably the greatest weakness um, in, in what they report. So let's say the following. Vegetables are a fantastic source of fiber. And we already know that elevated levels of fiber will uh, will correct cholesterol to some degree. So a lot of the biomarkers that they talked about improving on a vegan diet are going to improve if you eat a lot of vegetables, period. The other important thing about vegetables is that they are probably the the least calorie-dense foodstuff that we can eat, meaning you can eat a large amount of vegetables and and feel full and not have consumed a whole lot of calories. So when you start looking at the control groups, unless they're eating at the same isocaloric level, you're really talking about people, as you said, the vegans are are on a, not necessarily a calorie restricted, but they're eating less calorie dense foods. So they're going to feel full before um, somebody else does that's eating higher calories. And when you look and compare it to Mediterranean diet, where you can now introduce nuts and fish, now you're already back introducing calorie dense foods, especially nuts. 
nuts are among the most calorie dense. So right away there's a difference there. I think the other problems with the study is that um, the small sample size uh, increases the uncertainty of the results. And that's compounded by the fact that there was really no adequate control groups, I think, as you alluded to. So that any of the differences they showed are, are problematic in terms of whether they have any real meaning. Yeah, there's there's so much to dig into here. And um, what what this sort of research points me to, and I hate to say this because I really it drives me nuts when I see this online. I see dietitians and I see, you know, diet bloggers and smart people, you know, a lot of people with PhDs, they, you know, they're, they're working in this field or they're actually treating patients. They'll say, you know, something like, you know, calories in, calories out. You got to eat less than you, uh, than you take in or, or, you know, burn more than you take in whatever the, the adage is. But I think despite the sort of heavy handed way that message has been delivered over the years, it, it remains true. And I think this study shows it. And one of the reasons is that, People may have been on a vegan diet, but they weren't really monitoring the quality of the diet. So maybe there weren't any animal products, but, you know, you can have lots of junk food, lots of sweets, tons of sugar on a vegan diet. Yes. And and they still lost weight. So so the only variable that seems to make sense is that you ate less, even if you were still eating, you know, gummy worms and, uh, you know, yeah, vegan so ice when we cream. Say eat less, we mean eat less calories. Right. But that doesn't always map onto eat less volume. Yeah, that's a good point. And I, and I think that that's part of the problem with the study. The other thing is that, that you wrote about in the article is you mentioned uh, the Duke rice diet, yeah, which has been around for a long time. And I would tell you, tell you that that diet works, but it works only when you follow its fairly rigid routine to the letter. And the same is true for... The, the, grand, the granddaddy of those kind of diets, the Dean Ornish diet, which reduced the cholesterol and showed de- evidence that you could, um, that coronary artery plaque was remodeled if you stayed on that diet. But that diet involved not only um, attention to what foods you ate, but a fairly significant exercise program. And the Ornish diet also required you to meditate. And without doing all of those things, you didn't get the results that he demonstrated in his papers. That's fascinating. I, I would love to find out, and maybe we don't know yet, but like, like what's going on physiologically when you, it, like, is there something to following such an ascetic lifestyle that there's some impact there? I, I don't know. And the reason I ask is because you mentioned the, the rice diet, and this was pioneered by a researcher named Walter Kempner. And it turned out that this guy was a little out in left field, shall we say, and how he how he interacted with his patients. There were accusations of sexual assault later in his career and so forth. But if you just read the description of this diet, it reads like the ravings of a madman in a journal. But it was actually published in JAMA. <laughs> so he's talking about uh, people taking in 350 grams of rice. They're drinking fruit juice. Uh, they're not allowed to have nuts or avocados dried or canned fruit. They cannot have bananas. <laughs> um, oh, man, I, I, I would have a problem with that. And, and whether you think of it as the ravings of a lunatic or not, this was a diet that, that was being done at, at Duke. You could go down to Duke and spend two or three weeks at his institute as part of the university's systems <laughs> and be on that diet. And there was a lot of people that went down to do that every year. This is, you know, 
Yeah. They, they, as I said, it, it, it worked well. But then when you start talking about some of the things that you could and could not have on that diet, again, you start to see that whether it was intended or not, the high-density calorie foods were being put to the side and lower-density, higher-bulk foods were getting pushed forward along with everything else. There's certainly some evidence um, out there that forms of um, timed eating um, may make a difference too. It's, you know, our metabolism has been with us for millions of years and we're not going to simply crack it on the basis of eat this, eat that. It's just not going to work that way. That's just not how nature is. Yeah, very good point. I've I've heard you make that that argument multiple times over the years, and it, I wish people would understand that because it seems like, as I said before, with the calories in, calories out thing, people either ignore that, like the idea that there's different nutrients and your metabolism processes them differently. You know, that we just throw that out the window. That's that's quackery. But on the other side, you have the people who treat specific macronutrients like they're a rabbit's foot. You know, like if you just load up on saturated fat or you cut out carbs or you just all you eat is, you know, salads with <laughs> with no dressing on them. You know, this is the key. This is the great secret, you know, like, yeah. you know, maybe this is the metabolic equivalent of some book that you might see on the Oprah show. But <laughs> the thing the thing that was fascinating because you said that that Kempner's diet worked really well and it it did for a lot of people. So he published a paper in Archives of Internal Medicine in 1975 and it was uh more than 100 people. He he says they were quote massively obese. They each lost roughly 140 pounds on on this crazy diet that if I was to try this, I think and maybe I'm wrong, I think I would be utterly miserable just guzzling fruit juice, eating rice, eating a bunch of table sugar. This just seems like it would be so unsatisfying in so many ways, but, but it works. So what, I mean, you're the physician here. What do you make of this? (laughs) Well, there's something to be said by the highly motivated patient uh, in terms of doing things, not in terms of the placebo effect, but you're motivated enough to do it. Then you can start to see um, those results with pretty much any kind of um, a diet. It's being motivated and disciplined enough uh, to do that. And that, and that part of human behavior becomes difficult. I mean, I, 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 I can tell thousands of times that I, I knew that if I drove into the McDonald's, I would wind up with a Big Mac, no matter what I told myself before I got into the line. You know, and so you know, that, that was a question of discipline. And you know, I just knew that if I, once I got in the line, I was going to wind up having a Big Mac. So therefore, you cannot get in the line. And that's a tougher, that's a tougher discipline to take. That's for sure. That's for sure. But, but what's interesting is that that works. And and maybe that was what I was getting at earlier in, in that, you know, if you commit to something and you start doing it for even just a few weeks, I don't know if it's psychological, if there's some kind of metabolic adjustment that occurs, maybe it's both. You just start to adapt to that, you know? So you reach a point where you drive past the McDonald's and your example, you go, I'm going to, I'm going to skip that. I don't really need that. And you're, you're, you're not just punishing yourself. Maybe you are initially, but after a while you go, I'm actually okay. You know, I'm going to survive without uh, two patties, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions on a set, whatever the, you know, like I can do without that and I'm going to survive. So I, I don't know, maybe that's the way forward for people. It's just a little bit of willpower, a little bit of exertion. And, and, and yeah, you wind up creating a new habit 
now your body will will adapt to your new um, diet because that's what we do. Um, and then so you may need to continue to adjust that over time. But the, it, I think that being highly motivated and being disciplined allows you to create some new lifestyle habits and that that's where all these successes ultimately come from. Very good. Well, if, if it needs to be said, as I did in the story, nothing here should be construed as weight loss or dieting advice. You need, <laughs> before you do anything like this, you need to go talk to a physician, like someone that can see you and <laughs> Absolutely. Inform, inform your decisions. If you go on this Kempner diet and things happen that you don't want, that is not our fault. <laughs> no, no, no. Not telling you to do that. I just want to say that as we wrap up. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. Well, thank you all so much for joining us. If you want to get these stories that we're talking about, you just go to our website, acsh.org, click the subscribe button up top, and then punch in your email, and you will get these these uh, stories in your inbox multiple times throughout the week. And then at the end of the week, we uh, we get together around the campfire, and we talk about them and try to delve into them. And hopefully it's useful. But Chuck, it, it's it's great to chat with you again. I'm glad you're, you're home safe and sound. And uh, we will be back next week with everybody. Excellent. Thank you so much. Take care. Thank you, Chuck. And we will see you all next week.